0: What is repentance? Let's define repentance in Hebrew. Two words are used for the meaning of repentance. First, we have nahum, which means to grieve, a strong want to change. Second, we have shub, a radical change of mind towards sin, a decision to forsake sin and obey God. Now, let's look at the Greek definition of repentance, metanoia. To turn around, to stop going one way and begin going the opposite way. It's also described as a complete change of thinking. Repentance simply means to stop, turn around and go the other way. It also means to change how one thinks.
1: Let's jump into God's story found in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles before we eventually get to 2 Corinthians 7. Let me just give you a quick overview so you understand a little bit where we're going. After King Solomon died, who was the third king of Israel, Israel split There used to be 12 tribes and two tribes became Judah and 10 tribes became Israel. In our text, it's about 735 B.C. And the more rebellious Israel, the 10 northern tribes, they were plummeting quickly toward exile, which happened just about 20 years later. Judah, the more godly, but not that much, they were at the crossroads. Would they listen to God or would they just go their own way? You know, I've put out with the bulletins a handout. And not all of you need to get it at all, but it is so helpful for me as I, I just keep this in my Bible. And as I read through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, it just puts so much of the Old Testament in perspective. What prophet goes where? What king is king? How this all works together. And that might be helpful if you do want it on your way out. You can, of course, pick that up. But we're going to jump right into Judah's history. Again the little bit more godly nation. Ahaz was king of Judah. We read in this text that King Ahaz was crowned king of Judah at 20 years old. He ruled for 16 years, died at 36, all right? But the Bible says he was evil. Now, if you read through First and Second Chronicles, and you read through 1 and 2 Kings, you're going to see this over and over and over again. There was a king, and he was good. There was a king, and he was evil. Now, again, when the scriptures write this, basically what they're saying is an evil king was one that literally went their own way. An evil king was one that did not listen to God nor the prophets. An evil king worshiped other gods, a good king, the opposite. listen to God, worshiped Yahweh. It was important that at least we understand what we 're chatting about at the moment now ahaz 's son Hezekiah, became king at twenty five and he ruled for twenty nine years. And he was a good king. In fact, what I'd like to do is read to you from 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 5, 6, and 7. All right, you can follow along on the screen. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. That's the king. The son of Ahaz, the extremely evil king. All right, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There is no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands of the Lord that the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. Well, Hezekiah died. And his son Manasseh was crowned, whoa, at the old age of 12 years old. And he ruled for 55 years. And the scriptures say he was not only evil, which is a little odd, right? This amazing King Hezekiah. But he was, his son was extremely evil. He totally embraced Baal worship, flaunted this worship, established foreign temples, he practiced witchcraft, and he even sacrificed his children. But after being dragged to Babylon with a ring in his nose, he repented. I'm going to ask Sharon my wife to read this text. You can read again up on the screen or in your Bibles. 2nd Chronicles 33 verses 10 through 13.
0: The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they ignored all his warnings. So the Lord sent the commanders of the Assyrian armies, and they took Manasseh prisoner. They put a ring through his nose. Bound him in bronze chains and led him away to Babylon. But while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God.
1: It's amazing. We could be really judgmental here, but realistically, so much of our lives, well, we respond a little bit like this. Not that we sacrifice our children, but we seem to, well, worship other gods at times. But was so amazing. Again, in spite of his behavior, he repented. And God responded. He cleaned up his mess. And the scriptures say, as you can see, he sincerely humbled himself. He realized that it was God who was the only God. Well, Manasseh's evil son, Ammon, was crowned at 22 years old. He only ruled for two years. But the scriptures say this, he did not humble himself like his dad. So he learned from his dad, and he was evil like his dad. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, this is what the scriptures say about Ammon. He did, King Ammon, what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He worshiped and sacrificed to all the idols his father had made. But unlike his father, he did not humble himself, or shall we say repent, before the Lord. Instead, Amon sinned even more. Now there's a breath of fresh air. You turn to the next chapter in 2 Chronicles 34, and we find Ammon's son, evil Ammon's son, Josiah. And Josiah was amazing. It's a little weird to read in the scriptures that kings get crowned so early, but Josiah was crowned at eight years old. And he reigned 31 years. And his story is short, but it is so refreshing. We don't know a lot about Josiah, but we do know this, that his mother is mentioned. Maybe the influence of his mom helped him understand who God was. As we read through 2 Chronicles 34, we find out at 16, he begins to seek God. So I guess we can understand at eight years old, he was crowned. He liked God. He was bent toward God. But in his teenage years, he finally recognized, I I think that God was God. And the scripture said, he began to Seek or follow God. At 20, he took a little bit more power and authority and began to purify Judah, including Jerusalem. He was becoming more bold. It was a personal step first, and then he looked at the nation. At 24, he began to repair the temple. The temple, again, was a big time or a big thing during this time because. It really represented God's presence in and among Judah. So we began to repair it, and something very unusual happened. The high priest at that time was Hilkiah, and what the scriptures say is that he discovered or found the law. The temple was there, it's probably pretty dusty wasn't being used, and as they started cleaning up the area, they found a scroll. Not a Bible, but the scroll. Most scholars think it was the book of Deuteronomy, but it could have been all five of the books, the first five books of the Bible. But he saw it, and he sent this scroll right away to King Josiah. The scriptures tell us that a person named Shefan read the scroll to Josiah. Now, we already know Josiah sought God. We already know he was purifying the city. We also know that, that God was important to him. He was, again, restoring the temple. But now he heard the word of God. This king feared God, and he came under great conviction. The Bible says he tore his clothes, a sign of repentance. And he started shouting and letting others know, we have not been obeying the word of God. I thought we were doing okay, but, but we have not done this. God's word is so clear. So the high priest Hilica went to a female prophet called Hilda for guidance. And the only reason I said it was a female prophet is it's just a little unusual. But how cool is that? A woman of God ready to guide Israel. And what I'd like to do at this moment is have Melody Um, I'm going to have you read 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, verses 23 to 28. And again, before she reads, just be reminded, this is what the prophet Hilda or Huldah was saying, was responding to the high priest who was a little bit concerned because Josiah was so upset that they weren't obeying God's word.
0: She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, this is what the Lord says I am going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the curses written in the scroll that was read to the king of Judah will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will be poured out on this place, and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah, who sent you to seek the Lord, and tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before God when he heard his, when you heard his words against this city and its people. You humbled yourself and tore your clothing in despair, And wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You yourself will not see the disaster I am going to bring on this city and its people.
1: When King Josiah heard the word of God and he repented, there was wailing, there was weeping, there was fear. He saw very clearly that he was not and they were not totally living according to what God wanted. And he feared because he knew if they hadn't followed God, there would be disaster in the future. The prophet Shared some hope. Said, God had seen you. God understands you. God sees your weeping, the tearing of your cloth. Recognizes how repentant you are. And so this is what Josiah did, just the next few verses. And I'm going to have Gary Riendo read this 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, starting at verse
2: 29. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the Levites, all the people from the greatest to the least. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, And decrees with all his heart and soul. He promised to obey all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. And he required everyone in Jerusalem and the people of Benjamin to make a similar pledge. The people of Jerusalem did so, renewing their covenant with God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed all detestable idols from the entire land of Israel and required everyone to worship the Lord their God. And throughout the rest of his lifetime, they did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their ancestors.
1: God was so pleased with Josiah. He was pleased that Josiah repented. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25. This is what the scriptures say. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there has never been a king like him since. It's all written in the context of repentance, of a man that loved God, wanted to know God, and eventually heard God's word for the very first time recognized all the innuendos recognized all the things that he had not been listening to out of ignorance really he didn't know any better but he responded passionately he responded with great emotion and this is what God applauded God applauded there's never a king that repented like this. There have been good kings. There's been wonderful kings. But, but there's never a king that repented. And this repentance is what made him great. Now, it's interesting. In these short few chapters, God's grace is shown to two people who have repented. One who lived a rather vile life. And another one who from a young age was trying to follow God. But, but both needed to repent in their life. Now sad to say, if you continue reading the rest of 2 Chronicles and the rest of 2 Kings, you're going to find four more evil kings ruled before God punished and sent Judah into exile in 586. Now, the scriptures talk much about repentance. And sometimes we shun away from that word, thinking it's only for those who are extremely evil. But we shouldn't probably gloss over it. Hopefully by the end of this message, you will see that God gives each one of us opportunities to walk with Him with all of our hearts. But we blow it at times, some days more than others. And the repentance is critical for each one of us to be able to walk with our almighty God. You know, I enjoyed Pastor Tim Keller's comments about repentance, and I put it up on the screen for you. But he writes this. Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing the 95 thesis to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. The very first of these theses stated that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. On the surface, this looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying Christians will never make much progress in life. That, of course, wasn't Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Let's pray before we look into what the Apostle Paul has to say to a church who in some ways wasn't very clean at times. So let's pray. Father, we do come before you. We, we know that you are God. We know that you are the God of compassion and mercy, that you are slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. We know that your words are perfect and that your actions are just. We are a people that love control. But, Lord, we have learned that we have none. We look around at our world and in our neighborhoods, and we recognize how little control we have. We are a people who love comfort, but the future has made us uncomfortable. We are a people who love to make our own rules, but your words are life-giving. Lord, teach us today about following you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. Teach us this day, O God. We love you, and we do thank you for everything, especially the opportunity to gather together as God's people to worship and to hear from you. We love you, Lord, in your name, amen. If you would, you can turn your Bibles to Second Corinthians. And actually, we are going to start in chapter 2 for just a moment. But, but let me explain to you why. Paul and Timothy had left Corinth years before. And they were in the midst of ministry in Macedonia, which was a ways away. But they were going through some really hard times in ministry there. And then Titus. Titus shows up to Paul and Timothy. Now just to understand this letter better. Way back, it seems like a million years ago now, we were in Second Corinthians chapter 2. And in verse 12 and 13, which is up on the screen, I just want to share with you is that Paul jumps in this letter from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13 to 2nd Corinthians chapter 7 verse 5. He like, said, What's going on? Well, literally, what happened is that Paul again was sharing his struggles. He was talking about his time in Macedonia. Before he goes into this inspired digression, it's powerful. But he finally gets back on track in our text for today. But let me read to you, chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Paul says this When I came into the city of Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened the door of opportunity for me. But I had no peace because my brother Titus hadn't arrived with a report from you, you Corinthian church. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. All right, Paul was in the midst of conflict and had no peace of mind because there were questions about the letter and the Corinthian believers. He knew they, that he had left on a good note. But it just took a few years before this church began to turn against him and to be able to doubt his leadership. Paul knew the present leadership was hurtful and that the church hadn't focused on purity. He was still their shepherd. He saw the Corinthians actually casual towards sin. So he wrote 1 Corinthians to them and addressed some issues. We do know that, wrote, that Paul wrote at least two other letters to the, church, to the believers at Corinth. We don't have those recorded. And then he wrote a fourth letter, which was 2 Corinthians. And that's where we're at right now. So during this tough time in Macedonia, Titus arrives, brings the good news that the church in Corinth has responded. There's some good things happening. Paul is excited about this, and I'd like you to open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. Paul describes Titus coming. And he says his presence was a joy. But so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you folks in the church. When he told us how much you longed to see me now, they didn't just a little while earlier. And how sorry you were for what happened. And we don't know all that happened, but we tried to describe some of it. And how loyal you are to me. I am so filled with joy. Paul says that both his presence, both Titus' presence and the news that he brought, whoa, did that make me happy. Life has been kind of hard. Ministry's been rather difficult. It was so good to hear some people at a church I was at responding and listening to the Holy Spirit. News that the community was sorry for their sin and longed to see, Paul, an indication that things were on the road to recovery. Now the question is this, and we need to ask, what were they sorry about and what does actually sorry mean? Now I, I'm not sure you've read a lot of Dennis the Menace. All right, but what I like to be able to share with you is that Dennis the Menace was always saying he was sorry, you know. And I don't know if Dennis was sorry because he was just a little kid and he didn't really think of his, you know, his actions, or if Dennis the Menace was actually pretty repentive. And he, oh, Mr. Wilson, I've done it again. You know, uh, I am just so sorry. But if we look at incidents in our own life or when we say we're sorry, sometimes we're sorry because we got caught, because there are consequences. I am sure sorry, officer, that I was going 65 in a 35. Yeah, I am sorry too. There's some huge consequences there. Or are you sorry because it's sin and you have offended God and hurt his church? Well, we're going to look at how Paul talks about repentance. And something I think that should probably give you great freedom and great hope. So let's turn Second 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to start reading at verse 8. It's Paul writing, I am not sorry that I sent you that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now, Paul says, I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent, and to change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so that you are not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret in that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you, Corinthians. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such readiness to punish wrong. You show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Wow. Paul knew his relationship with the church had been strained because he addressed their sin. He talked to them. He shared with them. Those at the church could have been resentful. Maybe like, who does he think he is? Why is he judging us? They also may have been taking it on the messenger, knowing that this is God's word, knowing that God does address sin, and Paul was just bringing it to their attention. But Pastor Paul did the right thing, the hard thing. He was faithful to God's word. He addressed the behavior that offended the almighty God, and that always hurts. It does to me. Then Paul reminded them, although my words hurt you, they really were actually good because it caused you to repent. And then he goes on, puts his teacher hat on. He says, you know what? There's two kinds of repentance. There's two kinds. There's the worldly repentance or the worldly I'm sorry or the worldly sorrow, and that shows no regret. As I've said, it's mostly sad that you got caught or mostly sad about consequences. Repentance is absent when you're sorry in a worldly way. Most of the time, we want to wallow or justify our sin. And it does not lead us away from sin, it kind of makes us a little bit more passionate. Hey, next time, what can I do to get away with it? Okay, I'm sorry, I got caught. But then Paul says this. I want to paint you a picture. I want to paint you a picture of what godly sorrow actually looks like. What repentance looks like. What, what happens to a person who walks with the Almighty, and is changing us from the inside out. He says when godly folks recognize their sin in their lives, which is pretty often, they respond very differently. There's a desire to change your behavior or turn around. Literally what the Greek word means to repent is doing about face. I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm not listening to you, God. I know this is not healthy or good for me. I want to stop that in turn. Another picture that Paul says is there was great earnestness or zeal to make everything right. It's not just I'm casual, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. Man, I, I know you really like cherry pie. Oh, I, I want to make one for you. I know I've offended you. But even more, when it's to God, God, I, I, I need to do everything I can to make this right. Not in order to please you, but then I don't fall into this sin again. He said, there is a concern to clear your name, to clear your reputation. There's a readiness to deal with evil, which is your sin or my sin, and owning the offense. And then Paul says this, it's a longing to see Paul. You know, one of the things when you're mad at God is that you don't go to church. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? If you're mad and you're under some kind of conviction, the last place you want to be is church. You just do. When you're mad at God, you don't open your Bible. You don't want to do that. When you're mad at God, you don't hang around with godly people. You just don't. But what happens is that Paul said, it's kind of the same way with people. People. If you've offended someone and you see them down the aisle at Menards, you kind of say, oh, I think I'm going to go around that aisle because I really don't want to talk to him. No way. We don't want to face people that have offended us or hurt us or maybe that we've hurt them and not apologized and not asked to be forgiven. But Paul says, hey, I know, these are things that happen. Godly people, when they repent, when they own their sin, when they become clean, you can face people, you can face God. There is a burden that is gone. You see, real repentance leads you away from sin, not allowing you to wallow in sin, which destroys God's plan and purpose for each one of us repentance the scripture says results in our salvation now granted there is repentance when we first come to Jesus and we ask him to be our savior there's a recognizing there's sin in our life and that he is the only one who can pay for it and that's called justification but here I think Paul is talking about sanctification he's saying this result um, repenting of your sin, confessing your sin, owning your sin to the Almighty God gives you victory, helps you grow in sanctification or in holiness or being clean. And this is good news because there is a, a releasing of a burden. There is a freedom from guilt. Is amazing. And it's life-giving. See, realistically, I'd like to wrap up all the different things that I've kind of tossed out. This is a critical text for believers. Not just bad ones. Not ones who are running from God. But believers. Because every one of us sin multiple times times a day. The Christian life is a life of repentance. We do rebel against God, sometimes out of ignorance, and sometimes because we think we know it's best. What's so beautiful is 1 John 1, 9, because it covers everything. John writes this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, the ones we confessed, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness which we have done. All the things that we've done out of ignorance. The times we've gone our own way. Now now let me say this as we close. Religious people, they repent because of consequences. They want to look good. And they want to try to please, I guess, other people around them. But those who walk with God repent because sin displeases and dishonors God and the church. So very different. The religious repent less and less. And I think those who walk with God repent more and more. Now granted, as you walk with God over the years, you will begin to sin less because you are so connected to the Spirit and listening to the Spirit. I get that. But when sin does occur, You recognize, again, you are offended, the Almighty God, your Father, your good, good Father. Oh, God, I have sinned against you. I've not trusted you. I've not listened to you. I've hurt you. Granted, there may be consequences in your life. I get it. But ultimately, repentance starts there, owning that you have hurt the Almighty God. Now, God rejoices when repentance happens because even last week, if you remember our message, clean is important. We are the temple of God. And if there's sin in our life, if there is, that separates us from God. It restricts God's activity in our lives. And so confession, repentance, It's something that, well, washes us, cleans us, allows us to interact with God, hear from God, listen to God, respond to God, serve God with joy in spite of circumstances. So clean is important. But as I close this morning, I guess if you ask yourself how often you repent might answer a question for you, or let me put it this way: the way we respond to sin often tells us how mature we are with God. I'm not saying that so some of you can pat your, um, you know, self on the backs. But what I'm saying is this: if some are at the point where every time we don't sin or don't Obey God because God's going to give us a woman. It's probably a pretty immature place in our relationship with God. God desires deeply for each one of us to walk with him and enjoy abundant living, no matter what the circumstances. That's a fact. And we will suffer if we run from God. That's a fact. But what God wants us to understand is, I'm a good, good father. I've only given you my principles so that you might walk and have life. That you would experience abundance no matter what the circumstances are. That we need to understand that sin stops the train. That sin stops the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life that sin thwarts the progress of a relationship. God says so much, I loved Josiah because he opened up the word. He saw areas in his life that he wasn't listening. And he repented in his case he wailed i had to ask myself after preparing this message when was the last time that your pastor wept over sin rebellion in his life and i'm not saying that every time we sin, there's wailing and there's, there's tearing of your cloth and, and there's this gigantic show going on. But I think what you're hearing the apostle write is oh, when you respond to offending God vigorously and often, you'll experience freedom. There will be great life And you'll understand why Martin Luther then said that the Christian life is one of continual repentance. It's a good thing. And it's something that God desires for each one of us to respond quickly every time we offend. May God grow us in this area. May God grow all of us. May we each take a step toward maturity. I thank God for his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we are absolutely overwhelmed. We offend you so often. I offend you, Father. And yet, you died on the cross to take care of the penalty of sin. You died on the cross in order to take care of the power of sin. The stranglehold that it has on me, that it has on us. God, we don't have to live that way. And Paul saw a church that struggled. And yet, when they saw, when they finally saw, they repented and there was great freedom, and there was great growth. God, I pray for us. I pray for our church. I pray for the church. I pray, dear God, that you would rise up, raise up a bunch of Josias, people that open your word, and people that Respond and, and when they've missed the mark, confess it quickly. Accept your grace and move forward. We love you, God. We love you. We thank you and pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.